The strange thing about nuclear war, amongst many strange things, is that the war could be over in minutes. Press the button, turn the key, pull the trigger, and off they go, streaking through the sky as the sirens blare below. And then, impact, flash, crash, blast wave. The initial horror can be accomplished in minutes. But then, of course, the dust will settle. But the dust doesn't settle, and this thing will not be over for years and 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 years. Because the dust doesn't settle, the dust rises, being scooped up into the mushroom cloud to later descend as fallout. But that's not all that's being lofted high into the sky. Smoke goes up too. Smoke, suits, black carbon, pyrotoxic smog. <laughs> it's filthy up there in the post-nuclear sky. And it's that filthy, drifting smoke which produces the dreadful nuclear winter. And it's the nuclear winter which makes sure the effects of a nuclear war go on and on and on. And in this episode, we're going to learn all about it. I spoke to Dr Steve Arnold of Leeds University, who specialises in atmospheric chemistry. He listens to the podcast and follows me on Twitter, and when he saw me online fumbling with the basics of nuclear winter, he very kindly offered to talk to me about it. I had uh, foolishly embarked on some deep reading about nuclear winter and quickly found I had to (laughs) reel right back to basics and deal with basically school-level geography, like, what is precipitation? So here is Dr Steve Arnold, who kindly spoke to me over Zoom last week answered all my questions and will talk us through the smoggy, smoky horror of a nuclear winter. We'll start with uh, Dr Arnold giving us a brief intro to what a nuclear winter actually is. What would be happening up there in the sky? In a nutshell, we've got massive firestorms releasing insane amounts of smoke which are lofted particularly high into the sky. Up, up, up into the stratosphere. And it's up there that the smoke is 
free and unimpeded, able to spread itself out and linger, causing long-term effects down here on Earth. Basically, the higher the smoke goes, the longer it stays. Possibly, as we will hear, for years. Yeah, so, I mean, nuclear winter, the term, um, is kind of as it sounds. So the idea is that after a nuclear conflict, um, the kind of nuclear weapons being used and the resulting firestorms uh, and massive amount of material smoke that would be put into the atmosphere, the idea is that this could have a, a kind of global scale climatic effect. Um, and that effect would be to create a kind of sustained, prolonged and severe reduction in, in temperatures at the surface. Um, so that is kind of phrased nuclear winter. Um, so the, you know, the nuclear is the cause, I guess, and then the winter is the outcome. So the idea is this is this prolonged reduction in temperature. OK, and um... I believe that rain plays an important part in it. I think you said something about how rain in the lower atmosphere would pull the fallout or the, or the smoke down quickly, but in the upper atmosphere, that's not happening. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the mechanism that, that drives it is quite interesting, but I, I would also say that it's kind of a little bit uncertain because the mechanism really depends on, on certain constituents of the smoke. So it's important to say that what we're talking about here really is the firestorm. So it's the, it's the fire's you know, the huge fires that likely would be started in, in many urban regions and also kind of, you know, in woodland forest regions as a result of the, the nuclear weapons themselves. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine if you have the nuclear exchange and then you have these massive fires occurring, this would release a kind of unprecedented amount of smoke into the atmosphere on a scale that we just we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that smoke is the, one of the main constituents of that smoke is something that scientists call um, black carbon but basically you can think of it as like soot um, you know smoke essentially um, and the black carbon bits of this smoke can absorb um, radiation from the sun sunlight very effectively so what happens is as you just said in, in the lower atmosphere there would be rain that would be removing some of this smoke from the fires uh, and that's the main way that smoke is removed really from the atmosphere um, but because of this special constituent called black carbon as that smoke rises into the atmosphere it can absorb sunlight and that can warm it further. And as it warms, of course, as we all know, warm air rises and it rises further and further in the atmosphere. And what's unusual about, or what scientists think is unusual about these effects for in particular, these really large firestorms is that you'd have a lot of this material in the atmosphere that could actually rise really high into the atmosphere. So much, much higher than you see for standard forest fires, for example, and even much, much higher than we see when we have these big kind of volcanic eruptions. So when this smoke gets really high into the atmosphere, into a layer that we call the stratosphere, which is, is above us um, from about 12 or 15 kilometers upwards, um, then this can have really big effects because it can spread out a long way um, geographically uh, and it can reflect and scatter a lot of the incoming sunlight. And it's that kind of that scattering and reduction of sunlight that's making it down to the Earth's surface that causes this severe cooling effect. Okay. Um do we know how long the smoke would stay up there for? Is there any kind of um, thinking on how long that could last? Yeah, so I guess, again, it's a, it's an experiment we haven't done, obviously. So we hope that we'd never find out um, what would really happen. But scientists have used kind of computer models, um, climate models that, you know, are used um, in weather forecasting and also climate prediction. Um, these same models have been used to kind of study what the potential effects of, of the firestorms, um, post-nuclear firestorms might be. Um, 
And actually, it does depend a bit. So it depends firstly on how high up the smoke would get. So the higher up it gets, the, the longer it can survive and spread out around the globe. Um, and also it depends a bit on what it's made of. Um, and as I said, this black carbon aerosol, we think, can get relatively high because of this self-lofting effect that I described. Um, but it will be removed eventually, and, and the particles can join together to form bigger particles. There can also be chemical reactions that, that, that change the particles and allows them to remove more easily. But some of the most recent modeling studies that have been done um, really suggest that the effects that I've described, this, this lower temperature, um, this, this kind of layer of, of particles in the atmosphere um, reflecting and absorbing, sorry, I should say, sunlight and scattering sunlight, um, that might last maybe for um, you know, 10 or 15 years. And, and in fact, the, mod the computer model simulations that were done most recently to look at this, they ran those models to predict 15 years after the event. And actually they found that the temperatures never really recovered to the, the pre-event levels, even after that time period. So it's obviously gonna, the, the, the effect would reduce over time. It wouldn't be as severe, maybe 10 or 15 years after the event, but certainly there is, the computer model suggests there would be still a notice, noticeable reduction in temperatures even after that, even after that period. I then asked Dr. Arnold what nuclear winter would actually look like. We see an image of the sky in threads after the war, years after, when the sky is finally starting to clear. And in this image, the clouds, they look heavy and ominous, but there are hints and tinges of colour. It's not an unpleasant looking sky. So... In a nuclear winter, might we see some of the fantastic sunsets which often follow huge volcanic eruptions? And uh, Dr Arnold suggests that an astronaut up on the space station might be able to look back down and observe nuclear winter from space, as has happened with astronauts being able to see the clouds from a volcanic eruption. When he mentioned viewing Earth from the space station, that reminded me of a, a brilliant uh, story by Ray Bradbury, which you'll find in his novel The Martian Chronicles, which is really a, a book of connected short stories. And there's one called The Off-Season, where a couple up on Mars are watching Earth rise in the sky. And it looks distant, of course, and utterly perfect and green. And then nuclear war erupts, and they're watching it from Mars. Here's a quote from the story. Earth changed in the black sky. It caught fire. Part of it seemed to come apart in a million jigsaw pieces, as if a gigantic jigsaw had exploded. It burned with an unholy dripping glare for a minute, three times normal size, then dwindled. What was that? Sam looked at the green fire in the sky. Earth, said Elma, holding her hands together. Have you seen the, the film Threads, Steve? Oh, yes, yeah, I'm familiar with it, yeah. Okay, well, um, in Threads, uh, we, see this, we see some shots of the sky and it's all it looks textured it looks like it's yeah. um, the sun's starting to break through I think it's maybe like 10 years after the attack 
the sun is starting to break through, but the sky that we see in the film almost looks pretty. It's full of like, lots of flushed pink and the sunlight yeah. breaking through. In any other context, it might be pretty. So do we know, I know this is impossible to answer, but are there <laughs> any ideas of what the sky might look like during a nuclear winter? Would we get the, the fantastic sunsets that we sometimes get after volcanoes? Would it be like that? Yeah, so I, I think volcanoes give us a nice analogue here, probably. I mean, um, yeah, so it's important to recognise, I guess, that if you have the if you have this material, this smoke up there in the stratosphere, you know, the main consequence of that is going to be to reduce what we perceive as, as kind of sunlight coming into the surface. OK, so we're going to kind of see a dimmed atmosphere, um, kind of, you know, what you might see in, in twilight or you know, where, where it's just a kind of bit dusky, a bit dark. Um, and that's just the kind of direct what we call dimming of the, the incoming incoming sunlight. Um, However, as you rightly say, what we do know as well about kind of the impacts of these, these smoke particles in the atmosphere, they, they scatter um, sunlight and they scatter different wavelengths of sunlight in a different way. Um, and that's what can give rise to these kind of pretty colors that you're describing. So if we have a lot of material up there in the stratosphere um, and then we have the sun um, shining through that, and especially if we have the sun um, beginning to set or go to kind of lower on the horizon, um, then we might start to see kind of really kind of vivid colours imparted by the scattering of, of sunlight by, by the particles in the atmosphere. And we know from, you know, during the, the Mount Pinatubo eruption, which was a big volcanic eruption that occurred um, in 1991, you know, there, there were reports, very widespread reports of kind of very vivid sunsets and colours um, due to this layer of, um, of, of, of ash and volcanic material um, in the atmosphere. It's also interesting, actually, from that event, we know that um, astronauts on the on the International Space Station, I mean, they were able to see this layer of, um, of volcanic material very high up in the atmosphere. So, you know, from the space station, as they looked out in a kind of just across the Earth's atmosphere, they could see the very thin atmospheric layer that we're all familiar with from these kind of very um, striking images that we've seen, these images that we've seen from the space station. But you can see two very dark bands, which are this this layer of material in the upper atmosphere from the um, from volcanic eruptions as they happened. So uh, it's likely that, you know, the, well, maybe, maybe if there were people on the International Space Station, they would get a really good kind of good view of what this kind of global scale effect was on the, on the upper atmosphere. But certainly from the surface, from the ground, if we were looking up, we would expect, I think, yes, to see kind of really visual effects from, from this material being high up in the atmosphere. One of the effects of nuclear winter, uh, apart from the cooling of the temperature as the sun is blocked, would be terrible dry conditions down here on Earth. The Earth would cool, obviously, but it would also be dry. Perfect conditions, of course, to kill off any crops which had managed to struggle through the initial effects of the war. Perfect conditions, you might think, to finish off the last of us. So I asked Dr Arnold why. Why would a nuclear winter make things on Earth dry? Can you explain please, Steve, why there would be less rain, why things would be drier in a nuclear winter? Yeah, so I mean the, the effect on rainfall is also something that has been looked at in these computer models um, and also it's a very severe effect. Uh, so actually some of the most recent kind of climate modeling that was done to look at a nuclear winter scenario 
And again, this is after this full-scale, you know, US-Russian um, conflict. Um, actually suggests that on globally, you know, everywhere on average, there would be probably about 40 to 50% reduction in rainfall. And that would last probably for somewhere between six and seven years after the, after the conflict. Regionally though, in certain areas, um, especially in the Northern Hemisphere again, you know, the, the reductions would be even more severe than that. And it's really interesting to think about what it is about this, this nuclear winter effect that causes this reduction in rainfall. Um, and if we think about what controls rainfall um, in our kind of everyday climate, then really, as we all know from school, uh, you know, it's, it's the water cycle. And on a very basic level, that's controlled by evaporation of water from the surface, the oceans, um, especially. Uh, and if you were to um, reduce warming and heating at the surface due to this nuclear winter effect, that would reduce evaporation at the surface. So you have less evaporation of water going into the atmosphere, which kind of you know, slows down that water cycle at a very basic level. But actually, there's another effect which is, 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 is more interesting and kind of very important in certain regions of the world. And that's to suppress a, this, this nuclear winter effect, which suppress a very important process that we call scientists call convection. And convection is a kind of the rising of warm, moist air from the surface. And it's kind of responsible for forming these kind of fluffy clouds that we often see in spring and summer, these kind of cauliflower, you know, um, fluffy clouds. Um, and what we think in a, a nuclear winter scenario is because there would be much less surface heating, again, um, this convection process would be, would be suppressed. So there'd be much less convection, and that would lead to the, the kind of lower amount of um, these rain clouds, if you like, these convec what we call convective clouds. And actually in the tropics around the equator, you know, these, these clouds that I'm describing, these convective clouds are really deep. And this really drives a lot of kind of the, the weather patterns that we have in the tropics, you know, the, the kind of characteristic tropical daytime, afternoon, heavy rainfalls and, you know, thunderstorms, etc. All of that is driven by convection. So if you were to shut down a lot of that convective activity, um, you'd have a really, you know, severe, um, severe loss of rain and a severe suppression of, of rainfall in the tropics and also in regions of the North Hem Northern Hemisphere and, and in the Southern Hemisphere. Now, although the planet is going to be drier and colder, it wouldn't be the same everywhere. It would be warmer at the coast. Those who've read The Road by Cormac McCarthy, one of the greatest novels I've ever read, will know that the two main characters are trying to journey south to reach the coast. And it's obvious they're not doing that because there will be hot dogs and 99s on the beach. They're doing it because the temperature drop on the coast will not be as severe as it will be in the centre of a continent. And Dr. Arnold here explains why. When I, I was trying to struggle my way through some articles by Carl Sagan about this, mm -hmm. um, and he said that the, the terrible effect of a nuclear winter would be most pronounced in the middle of continents, in the middle of land masses, but not so much at the oceans. So do, do you know why that is? Can you tell us why that would be? Um, yeah, so I guess it's the climate of kind of inland continental regions tends to be, well, it's what we call a continental climate, in fact, and you know it tends to have more severe winters because these, there's a large thermal 
well, what we call a kind of uh, thermal inertia or thermal mass in the oceans, which kind of keeps coastal regions relatively more, more warm. So if you were to shut down incoming solar radiation um, due to this layer of material in the atmosphere, um, then that immediately stops kind of absorption of, of sunlight at the surface. And that absorption of sunlight over the continents, if you were to shut that off, the land mass would cool very quickly. So the surface would cool if, if there was an absence of sunlight shining on it. Of course, the, there's also an absence of sunlight shining on the oceans, but the oceans have a large amount of kind of um, heat energy stored in them, if you like. So it takes much longer for the oceans to cool down compared with the, the land mass. So for that reason, if you're on the, on, the kind of, on the coast, you would also undergo cooling, but it would be much less severe than you'd have in land where that kind of warming effect of the ocean um, you know, is much further away. So it, it, it doesn't keep you as warm as you would, as you would be if you're in a coastal region. Okay, so it's warmer than at the coast. So some areas on Earth would be more hospitable than others, but what if you escaped the Northern Hemisphere completely? We always assume, of course, that a nuclear war would be in the Northern Hemisphere between NATO and the Soviet Union, so up in the North. But what would it be like if you were down in the relatively unscathed Southern Hemisphere? perhaps in Australia or New Zealand or Argentina, somewhere in the south which is not directly involved in the nuclear war, would they still suffer nuclear winter? And obviously we always assume that a nuclear war would happen in the Northern Hemisphere, so yeah. the, the people, the, the smug people down in Australia, <laughs> New Zealand, etc., uh, what would they, what, what do you think they might experience if we're blanketed up here? What would they have down in the south? Yeah, know? so, I mean, unfortunately, they wouldn't escape, I think, yeah. is, is the main message. I mean, again, the computer models really do indicate that if you manage to get this smoke relatively high up into the stratosphere, um, then this effect of absorbing sunlight and reducing the sunlight that gets to the surface, um, that would actually make it into the southern hemisphere as well, because once you have material really high up in, in these high altitudes, the wind patterns, what, what we call the atmospheric circulation patterns, if you like, that can move the air very freely around the globe and actually it would spread out and have effects on the Southern Hemisphere, you know, even a, even a year after the event. Um, so certainly the effects are less severe. I mean, the, the main temperature reductions we're talking about um, that you'd get from a kind of assumption if there was a, you know, a large scale Russian, US or NATO bloc conflict if, if if that if that war if you like was to use the the maximum number of weapons that are allowed to be stockpiled at the moment under kind of current treaty agreements then what we think is that you get the the biggest temperature reductions over the northern hemisphere continents so imagine over like central us europe especially over central russia um and you know we're talking about very severe temperature reductions of you know minus 20 degrees c even um and in the southern hemisphere they're less um, extreme, but certainly they're ubiquitous. So, you know, if you were to go to South America or you go to Australia, then you'd definitely also be seeing these these reductions in temperature as well. So, yeah, I, unfortunately, no one escapes, really. It's no a global escapes. catastrophe. If we can mention threads again, because you all know how obsessed I am with it, although it is quite relevant to mention threads because 
The theory of nuclear winter, as we'll hear later, arose or was first introduced in the early 1980s. And of course, Threads appeared a couple of years after that. And it was one of the first films to show us the effects of a nuclear winter. So in Threads we see, as Dr Arnold has described and explained for us, the cold temperatures and the dry conditions. We see the crops rotting in the ground. But we also see that Ruth, when she dies, has terrible cataracts in her eyes. So was it an aspect of nuclear winter which caused that damage to the eyes? Steve explains that awful things such as cataracts could be caused by the destruction in the nuclear war of the ozone layer, which would allow then harmful solar radiation to pour through and harm us. Is it the ozone layer protects us from all the worst of the... That would be destroyed, is that right, in a nuclear winter? And so it all comes barreling through. Yeah, so, I mean, the ozone layer is really important. And that's, again, in this, in this region, I described this layer of the atmosphere called the stratosphere. Um, as we all know from, you know, 1980s uh, ozone layer, and, you know, it was on Blue Peter in the news all the time, protect the ozone layer. Um, and obviously at the time, it was it was a severe crisis. It really was that the ozone layer was being damaged. And, um, and actually what would happen in this in this nuclear winter scenario is that if you recall, I mentioned this smoke, you know, being lofted high into the atmosphere. And one of the effects of that is that, if you remember, I mentioned that that smoke, this black carbon, is absorbing sunlight um, and it's heating up. So actually that would cause temperatures in the stratosphere to increase. And one of the effects of that is to is to destroy ozone. So we'd expect there to be a, a be less ozone um, in the atmosphere. Also the small particles of the smoke this kind of interesting chemistry that happens that that means that ozone would be destroyed by by those as well. Um, so the, yeah, the, as you say, the upshot of all that is that we'd have less ozone in the ozone layer, and unfortunately, that means that you have more ultraviolet harmful ultraviolet radiation. Yeah, as you say, just barreling through the atmosphere, coming down to the surface, and that's really dangerous because you know it it, it directly leads to, to skin cancers. Um, so you know, from Australia and New Zealand. Uh, where there's a thin ozone layer and they've suffered in the southern hemisphere some of the effects of ozone depletion you know there's there was a, a noticeable increase in skin cancer cases due to the to low ozone amounts in the atmosphere um and that's what we'd expect to see on a very large scale in this post um, nuclear conflict world so cataracts skin cancers you know you'd expect those to definitely increase in prevalence um in this kind of environment okay um because uh, we've got all that heavy smoke in the atmosphere, would that, in the initial phase, protect us for a while from that? And then when yeah, it clears, it comes through? Is, is that, that's like really it? interesting. And I, I don't think I've seen that talked about. And I actually wondered about that as well. I, I think, yeah, I mean, that it, it's very difficult, I think, to get the nuance of this in a, in a useful way. Because, it, yeah, we know there'd be a huge effect. We know that the things we're discussing right now would, would probably be happening. But as you say, there are kind of, potential interesting trade-offs or interactions between some of these effects that I don't think we've we've looked at or computer model simulations haven't been done to kind of think in more detail um, about what that would mean. But certainly, yes, we'd expect if, you know, the, if there's less ozone, more ultraviolet is going to come through. Um, but certainly some of the radiation could be reflected or scattered by, um, by the, the changing amounts of, of smoke in the atmosphere. But I would certainly say, you know, that what we're talking about here is, you know, in the lower atmosphere, when the smoke would be present after the firestorm, 
that would be removed pretty quickly you know within a week maybe two weeks you uh, in the near surface atmosphere would expect that to go um, and be washed out as fallout basically and, and um and it's really the stuff higher up in the atmosphere where it's having the effect on the ozone layer that's causing the ozone depletion so i think actually the you know the, the effect that wins or wins out would be this loss of ozone and letting through more more ultraviolet radiation in the kind of you know in the on the time scale of months or years So as we discussed at the beginning, the theory of nuclear winter has been kind of buffeted since it arose. In the early 80s, the theory was first published by what are known as the TTAPS group. But of course, it can only ever be a theory. Nuclear war hasn't happened. And hopefully, of course, never will. So it will remain simply a theory written about in scientific papers and played around with on computers which do scientific modelling. It can only ever be a theory. Hopefully. But because of that, it means other scientists um, have been able to question it. And that's fair enough, of course, that's that's debate. So I asked um, Dr Arnold to just give us an overview of, of how the debate went. So in the early 80s, the theory of nuclear winter arose. And then later, scientists questioned it, of course. And a lot of them said, or some of them said, it wouldn't be as bad as first portrayed in those early papers. What we might see is a nuclear autumn, but nothing as severe as described in the nuclear winter scenario. So the theory kind of ebbed, it kind of fell away. But it has now come back because we now have, of course, more advanced uh, modelling. And we are now finding that, yes, if there was a, an all-out nuclear war, then we would see a severe, awful nuclear winter as first theorised by the TSAPS group. And in the reading that I've done so far about it, the only, <laughs> the only good thing to come from that, the fact that it would be so severe and so awful, the only good thing to come from that is that it involves all of us. Those in the Southern Hemisphere, for example, can't say, well, it'd be a nuclear war between East and West, between NATO and the Soviets. No. Everyone would be involved. Everyone would suffer the consequences. So it gives every single person on Earth an interest, even if they're very, very distant from Berlin or Moscow or Washington or London, even if they're as far as it's possible to be, they still have an interest in making sure nuclear war never happens. So that is the one good point in the horrible, terrifying theory of nuclear winter. It unites every single one of us in one common cause. This cannot be allowed to happen. The the impression I had of nuclear winter was it was a big thing in the 80s, early 80s, yeah. and then the science kind of, or people kind of stepped back a bit from it and said it won't be as bad as we thought, but now we've realised it, it probably would be because we've got better climate modelling. Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, so I mean, I have to say I'm not, I'm not au fait with kind of all the kind of, you know, twos and fro's and, and kind of detail of that, that kind of political scientific discussion, but I do know that it was the early 80s when some of these studies were first done. So this is when, you know, people like Carl Sagan that you mentioned, also Paul Crutzen, who was a Nobel Prize winner on, in atmospheric chemistry. So 
Um, you know, these people were kind of giants of their time, scientific mind, great scientific minds of their time, and they started to wonder about these potential effects. And yes, as you say, they turned some of the kind of very earliest um, climate modeling to, to look at this. And some of those early studies, yeah, they, they started to, to predict these kind of, you know, prolonged severe impacts. And that's when, you know, this, this phrase nuclear winter was, was coined. Um, and then those, well, as you say, those models that were very, in their early stages were very simple compared to the kind of models that we have now. And, and there were two main, not problems, but limitations. So one was that they often didn't have an ocean. So um, this kind of ocean thermal effect that I mentioned earlier was largely absent. Um, also, they weren't able to carry out a computer simulation in very much detail of what was happening right high up in the atmosphere. So they tend to have a lid where they're not, <laughs> they're not simulating anything that happens above a certain level. Um, and also they split down the atmosphere into different vertical levels, but some of the early models did that in a very coarse way or very rudimentary way. So those were the main limitations. Uh, and there was a kind of, uh, a lot of studies that came out. So there was, you know, some in the mid eighties, there were some in the early nineties. And some of the latest studies did predict kind of not as severe effects, but actually when you look at them, there were still big effects, you know, there were still a global scale effects and i think there was one study in particular that just coined this phrase nuclear autumn um despite the fact this study was actually predicting relatively severe effects um and that kind of got latched onto in the political world in the media world i think and that kind of was taken as a kind of suggestion that perhaps some of these effects were not as not as widespread or not as severe as some of the early modeling was predicting however more recently um, in kind of, I think there was a paper in 2007 and, and also in the last two or three years, there've been a number of really good studies using very modern models where these are the kind of models that are very sophisticated, do a really good job at simulating the stratosphere in these kind of upper levels. Um, and actually they do produce some of the effects I've been describing earlier. So when I describe these kind of, you know, minus 20 degrees C scenarios, this kind of rainfall um, suppression lasting for six or seven years, these are all Kind of effects that are being produced in these more modern climate models. So actually, our, our present-day understanding, if you if you believe what's happening in these models and how they've been set up, you know the the effects that are being predicted are are relatively relatively severe, and it's come a long way. You know, models have changed a lot in that time. But one thing I wanted to say was just about, you know, the climate modeling is one set of uncertainties, but actually, it's how you do the experiment. It's what you assume about these firestorms, where they're going to be what's being burned, how much is being burned. Um, all of those uncertainties, I think, from my perspective at least, are, are some of the key things that, that you need to get right if you're gonna use these studies to kind of say anything about the magnitude or certainly some of the details of these effects. So you, know, you have to make assumptions about where the, where the burning is gonna be, where the firestorms are gonna be, sorry, which I guess in turn depends on where the targets are in a nuclear conflict. Um, you have to make assumptions about what kind of material you're burning, how combustible it is, how that smoke then gets moved around in the lower atmosphere, uh, what that smoke is made of, which will determine how long it lasts in the atmosphere, how much black carbon is there compared with other constituents in the smoke. All of these questions are really interesting, but also really uncertain. And we don't, you know, we don't know much about what, what, these, what these fires would do. Uh, and as I said earlier, you know, we hope we won't find out. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of some of that is, or some of these, well, some of those aspects I think are very, very uncertain compared with some of the assumptions in the in the climate modeling itself. I've, I've got access to JSTOR. Obviously, I'm no oh, yeah, longer okay. at university and I can't yeah. afford to pay for academic journals because you know okay. what they cost. 
Um, but JSTOR, during the pandemic, have said if you log in, you can have 100 articles a month free, which is brilliant. Okay. So yeah. I've been downloading all these academic journals about nuclear winter. And obviously, I can't understand half of them. <laughs> Carol Sagan very kindly wrote one for um, Foreign Affairs, the magazine. But um, he said, you know, basically, this is for the layman. So I've been devouring yeah. that one. And in that one, he said, um, as well as smoke, we would have to contend with, because modern cities are full of plastics, of course, yeah. we would have to contend with, um, I think he called it something like pyrotoxic smog. Pyrotoxic, right, okay. I think that was it. Yeah. So all the plastics that are burning will give off their own particular hideous smog. So yeah. we've also got that hideous thing drifting around in the atmosphere. Well, a lot of dust as well, I think. That's that's yeah. another thing to bear in mind, is that, you know, if you... <laughs> If you create devastation on a kind of on a massive scale across urban areas, then obviously you're going to have fires, but you're also going to have a huge amount of dust blowing around as well. So in the lower atmosphere, I would expect there to be you know huge impacts from from scattering again of radiation from dust in the lower atmosphere. But to get this stuff really high, you know, into the stratosphere, it's this kind of very special mechanism with black carbon that's needed. And actually, what might happen is that you'd have all the other constituents, the dust, etc., you know, washing out, falling out lower down. And creating the fallout and then this kind of black carbon smoke would self-loft deeper higher into the into the atmosphere um right. so and again this is kind of yeah very but all of this is very dependent on exactly what's being combusted and, and, and mm -hmm. destroyed i guess but if we have our dust and our i think it's pyrotoxic smog that would yeah. all be lower levels and the black carbon is is always higher eventually that's the assumptions made and you know the models do suggest that so in the model what you can do is you can say let's have some black carbon in the lower atmosphere you give it the properties that we know black carbon has and the model will predict based on sunlight coming in based on the atmospheric winds the models do seem to predict that you get this lofting in really deep high into the into the stratosphere okay. um and there have been examples i mean the recent australian fires uh i think it was yeah it was like december 2019 january 2020 just before the, the pandemic in fact um i mean there there are measurements showing that you know there was stratospheric injection of those fire um smoke plumes so you know the, that was a huge fire i mean from satellite you can see the whole of eastern australia almost is kind of covered in smoke um and, it, and there was a suggestion that, you know, from, again, from measurements from satellite, we can see that some of that smoke was being lofted, you know, into the stratosphere. should say nowhere near as deep as, as some of the computer models are predicting for nuclear winter effects. But nevertheless, you know, they're getting into that region of the atmosphere where the removal processes, the washout is much lower and the, and the smoke can kind of persist for a long time. And there are studies showing that there was about a one degree temperature drop um, over six months regionally around Australia due to the due to the fires and that kind of uh, stratospheric injection of smoke. So um and again I'm sorry if this is a silly question is there nothing going on in the stratosphere that would pull the smoke down is it just a big I don't know I picture it being just like a big empty <laughs> I've, got, I've, got, I've got colleagues who would be very offended by the suggestion that there's nothing going on in the stratosphere. Uh, <laughs> um, it's not that it's, the stratosphere is extremely dry okay so compared to the lower atmosphere there isn't much water in the stratosphere at all um and there's no real you know there's no formation of of kind of liquid clouds or rain clouds or uh, anything like that and, it, and it's those processes chiefly at the surface that are responsible for removing smoke so you know the smoke will dilute and blow around the atmosphere and in fact we won't get into it today because this is again getting into more kind of complicated atmospheric science but Actually, smoke particles 
often form raindrops in clouds, uh, and then they'll be removed from the atmosphere. Once they're up in the stratosphere, it's very dry. Uh, you know, there's no kind of, there's nothing like that happening. The other thing about the stratosphere is that it's what we call very vertically stable. So it means that there's no rapid kind of overturning or vertical um, up and down movement of air. And, and in the troposphere, which is the layer below the stratosphere where we live, um, you know, there's a lot of vertical movement. There's air rising, as I said, in these kind of convective clouds, there's air moving up and down all the time. Uh, in the stratosphere, once you get air injected, it tends to sit in a vertical layer, in a very stable vertical layer, and it can be blown around horizontally, but it doesn't tend to move up and down very effectively. So it gets trapped there, basically, and it gets trapped in a layer where there isn't much removal process happening at all. And for that reason, it can spread out um, a long way around the globe. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed uh, recording it, uh, speaking to Steve, uh, Dr. Arnold, because um, I was learning such a lot too. So thank you again to Dr. Steve Arnold for giving me his time speaking to me about nuclear winter. And I hope you've all had a lovely Christmas. Um, I took a look at my stats, podcast stats on Christmas Day, and it warmed my heart, it really did, to see that even on Christmas Day, that day of lovely festive cheer... Some people were still downloading Atomic Hobo. Well done. That was great to see. <laughs> and I recorded a, a festive bonus episode on Christmas Eve about um, the Christmas carol, the Christmas song, Do You Hear What I Hear? Which has a, a nuclear connection. So that's the third bonus episode that I've recorded over the past month. I'm now doing that, as well as doing our weekly podcast episodes, I'm doing bonus episodes for patrons. So if you want access to these bonus episodes, simply go to patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo and for just £2.50 a month or $3 a month, you can get access to bonus episodes. And there are three waiting there for you already, ready to download. And let me give a shout out to those who've joined in the last week. We have uh, Doug Poland, Yannick and David Daly, Alan Walker, Paul Almond, Richard Byers, Jess Clark and Dave, a.k.a. Shota's Disco Shoes. Thank you to everyone who has uh, joined my Patreon and who's supporting my podcast. But jump in now if you want to download bonus episodes. They are there waiting for you right now. And remember, you can find me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell or my website, juliemcdowell.com. I'm also on Facebook under the name of Nuclear Britain. So thank you all for listening, and I'll be back next Monday.